0: Hi, thanks for joining us on Him We Proclaim with our Bible teacher, Dr. John Fonville. We are continuing the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. John has entitled the next several messages, The Peace of the Church. Is Jesus interested in there being peace in his church? Absolutely. And what disrupts that peace is tolerating sin, false teachers, and their false doctrine. It's upsetting to believers and disruptive to the gospel going forth. One could say it's an age-old problem. The teaching today will give us a good foundation about this important topic to believers. Here's John with the Peace of the Church, Part 5. All right, well,
1: take your Bibles and you can turn back. We're going to continue our study in 2 Thessalonians. And, um, you know, when when a pastor gets up in the church these days and he says this phrase, take your Bibles and turn to... that's, that's become very uncommon because, first of all, we have Bibles on iPads and iPhones and uh, Samsung Galaxies and, or whatever it is that you like to use. But second of all, it's become uncommon because typically, well, preaching doesn't typically go through books of the Bible, so you really don't need to open up your Bibles. But uh, it's a wonderful thing in the church. It's so encouraging to be here week after week and be able to say, take your Bibles and turn to, and we actually look into God's Word, and we value that here, and I'm so grateful that you value that as well. Um, But we're going to come back this week in our study. We just have a couple more things to look at as we finish up Paul's letter to 2 Thessalonians, but... Um, we're going to look at it again this morning, and uh, the, what I want to do is just take a, just back up a little bit, because you've probably heard the expression that you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You're, you've heard that. You can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, sometimes you can be so focused on the many details that you fail to, to see the overall viewpoint. You fail to see the overall big point that um, is being made. That can happen sometimes when we're looking at books of the Bible. So, as we come to the conclusion of 2 Thessalonians, before we just keep going uh, uh, through chapter 3, and we're going to do that today, but before we do that, I thought it would be helpful for us to take a step back from the trees of chapter 3 in in order to look at the forest, look at the whole book, um, and just kind of remind ourselves this overall viewpoint of what Paul's trying to do here. uh, To get the whole Contextual setting. So we need to remind ourselves this is that uh, Paul's letter to 2 Thessalonians is organized around one central thing. And the one central thing that the whole letter is organized around is the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Jesus. In other words, he he the whole letter is structured around the hope of the gospel. And so we can see this uh, back in chapter 1 as the theme of the letter. He summarizes the theme of the letter back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 10. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And so the second coming of Jesus controls all three chapters of 2 Thessalonians. Let me just quickly give you uh, a summary view of that. In chapter 1, Paul speaks about the comfort of the second coming of Jesus, the comfort. The the pressing matter that he was addressing in chapter 1 is the persecution of believers. He's writing to comfort these young persecuted believers with the comfort that when Christ comes again, their persecutors, he says in verse 8, will receive vengeance. And he says in verse 10, when Jesus comes again, they will receive vindication. And so he's trying to comfort persecuted believers. In chapter 2, Paul is speaking about the signs of the second coming of Jesus. And here in chapter 2, this pressing matter that he's addressing is the deception of believers. The deception of believers. False teachers had come into this young church, um, and these young believers were deceived into thinking that the day of the Lord had already arrived, that the second coming and the resurrection and the, the eternal Sabbath rest, all this has already taken place. And so Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, that because of that, these young baby Christians had become shaken and alarmed in their faith. They had lost their assurance. They were were afraid. And so his aim in chapter 2 was to to calm these young Thessalonian believers by correcting their false understanding of the second coming of Christ. And that brings us to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul is speaking about the ethics of the second coming. In other words, he is speaking about how we as believers are now to live in light of the view that Christ is going to come back. So he shows us how the second coming of Christ affects how we are to conduct ourselves now. That's chapter 3. So the the pressing matter that he addresses in chapter 3 is the disorderliness of believers. The disorderliness of believers. So he has addressed the persecution of believers in chapter 1. He's addressed the deception of believers in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he will discuss the disorderliness of believers in the church in chapter 3. And so just just again by way of review, we said that these believers had the mistaken belief. They had been deceived in thinking that uh, the second coming has already happened. And because of that, some of the members of the church had become disorderly. We said that this was insubordinate. They had become rebellious and unteachable. Uh, chapter 3, verses 6 and 10, they were now refusing to follow Paul's teaching in the church and the church leadership. And because of this disorderly conduct in the church, they're disrupting the peace of the church. And so what Paul does in chapter 3 is he issues three sets of commands to the Thessalonian church to bring peace and order back to this young church. Last week, we looked in verses six through 10, and we we saw this first command that Paul gives. He commands the orderly. He commands the faithful in the church. He says, keep away from disorderly believers. That was his first commandment. So he shows us that the whole church participates in this disciplinary process of disorderly members. The way that the church members do that, verses six through nine was, he says, avoid their negative influence. Be careful who you associate with because they will influence how you think and how you live. Don't associate with those people. Avoid their negative influence. And in verse 10, he says, the way you cut off teaching, false teaching in the church is you stop supporting them. You stop funding them, you, because we said what had happened. These these believers had, because of this, they had fallen into the deception of this false gospel. They had left their day jobs and they had they had taken on a new job in the church. They were self-appointed teachers and guardians of the church's teaching now, and they were meddling in the affairs of other believers in the church spreading this false gospel that they had been deceived into believing and because they had left their day jobs they had to eat so they were asking the believers in the church hey support our support our new quote ministry so they were sucking funds away from the church in real needs and they were spreading this false gospel with these false teachers and Paul said look enough of this Don't support them, because if they don't work properly in a legitimate job, they won't eat. And if they don't eat, desperate people who are hungry will do the correct thing. So refuse to support them financially. Why did Paul tell them this? Last week we saw he did this, because he wants to preserve the peace of the church in order to aid the advancement of the gospel to unbelievers, And so this brings us to Paul's second command in verses 11 and 12. Uh, In verses 6 through 10, Paul addresses the orderly, the faithful believers in the church, but now he turns his attention to the disorderly, and he addresses them directly in the church. And so keep in mind the context of this. These letters were read in the public gathering of the church. So when this letter was read in the public gathering of the church, guess who was identified in this letter? (laughs) The disorderly. And everybody knew who they were at this point because Paul singles them out so everybody knew exactly where this was coming from. Because if you don't know where the problem is, you can't avoid it and you can't cut it off. So look what Paul does in verses 11 and 12. He commands the disorderly to simply, he says, cease from your unruly conduct. Listen to what he says, verses 11 and 12. He says, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort. We'll come back to that. We command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So as I've pointed out to you in verse 11, Paul has this play on words in the Greek, which you don't see in the English. But in the Greek, what you have is is you have people who are not busily working properly, but they are busy working improperly is basically what he's saying. He says, we hear that some are not busy doing legitimate work because they left their day jobs, but rather their busy bodies, they're doing illegitimate work. So the problem wasn't idleness, the problem was false teaching. Some believe that because this Sabbath rest has now entered and in the second coming, the resurrection has occurred, they were deceived in believing that, well, work itself is now done away with. So we better pick up this new baton and begin to teach this new teaching to the church. And as a result, some were deceived into thinking that they didn't have to abide by this old world structure such as working. But they didn't stop working, Paul says. They just started working in the wrong way. They left their day jobs, which was benefiting their neighbors, And they picked up this busybody job, which is being a burden to them. And so they were going about in the church spreading this disorder, spreading this disunity, spreading this insubordination and rebellion throughout the church. So the presenting problem was their idleness from leaving their day job. But the underlying issue and problem that Paul is addressing here is the disorder of false teaching and, and, and the disorder of bad conduct in the church that associates with it. Th- these disorderly rem- uh, members were interfering with the business that properly belonged to the official leaders of the church, both in teaching and administration and finances. We saw that. So look at verse 12 and look at what Paul says. In response to those who are being disorderly, he gives a very sharp command. Look at verse 12. He says, now those who are such, we command and exhort. This combination of putting together command and exhort is a way for Paul to emphasize as strongly as he can, stop it. Stop it. This is a very form, this is a very strong form of commanding. He is again emphasizing, also note right here. He says we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he is emphasizing that to disobey his apostolic command is to disobey the Lord himself. And his command is very clear and very plain. He strongly commands these disorderly members. He says, return to your legitimate places of employment. In other words, work in quietness. And he says, so that you're able to buy what you need, eat your own bread. Now, here's the question as we look at this, because this is very straightforward, and there doesn't need much explanation for how you discipline disorderly people. You tell them to cut it out. That's what Paul's doing here. But the question underneath that is, is why is Paul in such a determined mood, right? Why does he exercise his apostolic authority in issues such a strong and forceful command to those who are being disorderly in the church? Here's the answer. The answer is the gospel specifically the hope of the gospel, the second coming of Christ. Because as I showed you as we began, every chapter is governed by this theme of the second coming of Christ. Paul understood that the most significant event yet ahead in redemptive history is the second coming of Christ, so that when Jesus returns, he will complete God's eternal plan of salvation, and he will usher in the consummation of God's kingdom. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul refers to the glorious appearing of Christ. He says, as clothed, the church's blessed hope. And so the church throughout these centuries has confessed in the words of the Nicene Creed, as we will do in just a few minutes, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is the church's great blessed hope. So because this is the hope of the gospel, it is not surprising to see that the enemy of our faith would seek to distort the hope of the gospel, and that he would do that so that in chapter 2, verse 2, he could sow alarm and fear in believers and destroy their assurance, take away their hope, cause confusion. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 11, so that he can sow disorder, rebellion, insubordination in the church, and get people focused away from the hope of the gospel to live in deception, chapter 2. So it's not surprising that the enemy of our faith would want to destroy the very thing that God has given to us that enables us to live a godly life now. And to live in the hope of the future of the world to come. And so as we reflect on Paul's command this morning to the disorderly, it's very straightforward. You go to them and you tell them you need to stop. You cut it off. And we do this for the sake of the gospel to protect believers in the church. And as we reflect on this, there's two important lessons for us to carefully consider for why Paul is doing this. Here's the first one. The, the, the first lesson that we see from this for us is that we are to work so that we can provide for the genuine needs of the church. That's, that's what we see Paul doing here. The, the social setting and these problems of 2,000 years ago in this church in Thessalonica, they're very far removed from us. But the, 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 but the underlying principle of what Paul is showing us here is the same. What were these disorderly believers doing? These disorderly believers were focused on their own needs rather than the needs and concerns of the church body. And so Paul commands them, he says, return to your day jobs so that you stop being an unnecessary burden to the church. Rather than benefiting the church, they were burdening the church, they were sucking and taking away finances. Away from genuine needs that needed to be met in this church. And so when there are genuine needs that that exist in the church, the members of the church, Paul teaches us, have a responsibility to meet those needs. And for example, in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28, he says this to the church in, in Ephesus. He says, let the thief no longer steal, obviously illegitimate work, He says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In Titus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, uh, there was a similar problem going on in Crete with these young church plants in Crete. And so Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13, he exhorts this young creed in church. He says, this is very interesting. He says, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and listen and not be unfruitful. So who were Zenos and Apollos? Zenos and Apollos were members of Paul's traveling missionary team in the first century. They were, they were, they were just this apostolic assistants who were traveling around helping Paul with all of the churches that he planted, and they were probably most likely the carriers of the letter to Crete, and they probably gave it to the, the, Paul's letter uh, of Titus to the Cretan churches. And so, what you had was is that leaders of the early church, because they were traveling and they didn't have a, a place where they were just a home base, but they were always traveling. Leaders of the early church were often. Um, uh, urge Christian communities extend hospitality to these traveling preachers, extend hospitality to Paul's apostolic missionary team and other strangers who come into your midst. And so Zenus and Apollos have faithfully fulfilled their mission to Crete. And Paul instructs Titus and, and the Crete believers, he says to them, he says, do your very best to send my workers on their way, listen, fully equipped for their next mission. Paul exhorts the credent believers, the church, to provide for the needs of genuine, faithful Christian gospel ministers. So just as in Thessalonica, so here in Crete, Paul's concern is for the spread of the gospel to unbelievers. And the primary way that he spread the gospel was through, listen, his missionary traveling team that was spreading the gospel. And so both in Thessalonica and Crete, young believers in the churches faced the threat of false teachers distorting the gospel, and then the disorder that results from these false teachers. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Titus, Paul describes false teachers like this. He says, false teachers in the church are, quote, evil beasts. His point is this, both in Thessalonica, both in Crete, and he also did it to the churches in, Galatia, in, Gal- in Galatians chapter 6. If genuine gospel leaders are neglected, false teachers will devour the churches like wild beasts, like wild animals. There will be nobody there to protect the sheep. Therefore, Paul says, it's of paramount importance to meet the needs of the leaders in order to preserve and propagate the work of the gospel. And uh, in, in, in Titus chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says that providing for faithful gospel ministers is to the church's advantage so that you will not be unfruitful. He says Christians become fruitful, churches become fruitful as they seek to provide for the needs of those in the congregation, particularly their leaders, so that the gospel is always central to the church life. This is what Martin Luther says about this back in the Reformation. He says, this, "He says only now do we understand how necessary this commandment of Paul's about providing for the minister of the church really is." He says, "There's nothing Satan can bear less than the light of the gospel." Did you hear that? There's nothing that Satan can bear less than the light of the gospel. When the gospel shines, Satan becomes furious and he tries with all his might to extinguish it. He attempts this in two ways. First, by the deceit of heretics and by the might of tyrants, secondly, by poverty and famine. Because Satan has been unable thus far to suppress the gospel in our territories through heretics and tyrants, he is trying to do it the second way. He is trying to deprive ministers of the word of their livelihood so that poverty and famine will force them to forsake their ministry. And the unfortunate people deprived of the word will eventually degenerate into animals. I, just this past week, I had the opportunity with uh, Neil Labar, the, the bishop in the Anglican Church. Um, he introduced me to the bishop of the, of, a church in, of, of the church in Kenya. And we had a wonderful afternoon and we were meeting, and this man is very, very poor. The, the average income of, the, uh, of a Kenyan is less than a dollar a day. Very poor. But the center of the Anglican church and the leadership and the explosion of the gospel of faithful gospel leaders is all occurring in the global south and throughout the continent of Africa. There is a massive awakening happening in the the continent of Africa in the Anglican church as the gospel is spreading. One bishop that I spoke to baptized 500 believers in one week.
0: Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Peace of the Church from the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. More from the series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clearer understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play him we proclaim is a broadcast of dr john fonville if you would like to visit pastor john's church in jacksonville florida you're always welcome you can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. i'm josh montez thanks for listening and join us next time